I got DW Young here. We are talking about the in, insane day that we're living through right now with, um, I don't know, I, I saw on Twitter it was called the Day of Rage. It's pretty wild. What a term. That's what they said? That's what, like, I, I opened up Twitter today to see, like, what the, you know, what the kids were talking about, what was hot in the streets, and um, Day of Rage was trending. Pretty weird. Ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. You were, you said that you were picking up your kids and, and there was like a whole scene. Kid. Um, yeah. I don't know what it was, but it was just weird because there were all these school kids out, like from a different school hanging out. But then they all, something was going on in like Fulton Street and downtown Brooklyn. And this huge swarm of them all took off running because I saw that there were cops. I don't know what was going on, but they just like, this whole swarm just went in mass, like down the street. Um, so part Sorry. of me was curious, but I was like, yeah, I'm just, we're going to. Don't want to find out. Yeah. Plus, I had to come do this podcast. So <laughs> we caught up in any mayhem. Right. right. Well, uh, yeah, I installed Citizen App today. I had never used it before. And oh, yeah. man, it is a weird thing. Like, I left the notifications on. I'm definitely turning them off. Like, yeah, I think it's tomorrow. like a mixed blessing, that thing. Like, it's dark. Yeah. It's like, oh, sex offender just moved in. Oh, someone's wielding a, a knife. Oh, there's a gun. Like, it's crazy. You could drive you could drive you crazy. Yeah, sure. I'm getting rid of it tomorrow. It's the one day thing. Yeah, not into it. So, are you uh, are you from New York forever or what? Not originally, but yeah, a long time now, since college. So, Where'd you go? Yeah. Uh, Vassar. Oh wow! I'm working with someone from Vassar. I went to Emerson, and um, I just I just brought on like the, um, she was she ran the journal over there, so we're working on something like a newsletter thing. But we were talking about how Vassar. When I was, I don't know if it's still accurate, but when I was at Emerson, we were told that there was a study. I doubt this was a scientific study that yeah. Vassar and Emerson were the two gayest schools in the country. And I was always very proud of that. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but I, it was definitely, I mean, when I was there in the 90s, it was like queer politics and everything was very upfront and very present. Yeah. And, um, so maybe. It's nice, like, being, uh, I, was, I was about to say being confronted with that, but it didn't feel that way, actually. It felt very, you know, normal and natural. Like, you know, having this moment now or over the last few years where it's very much you know, ever present in the conversation. It was like, you know, in college, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was very similar. It was very, um, it's like not a big deal. I don't know. Always yeah, I think. Oh, well, I you got know, second your belly delivered. <laughs> oh, thank you. You could leave it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we had, um, we had, co I assume they still do. We had co-ed bathrooms, you know, so it was actually kind of like for some people like an adjustment, but then you know people get used to it. But wow, yeah. you know, it's a politicized thing now, obviously. Like, right. <laughs> That's wild. So did you start making films back then? Not at all. No. Okay. Um, no, it's like I'm like a late bloomer in film. Yeah. Makes sense. No, I was like looking at writing, writing like 
literary fiction basically for a lot of years and um kind of like hit the wall on that and kind of just felt like i was doing achieving what i wanted to achieve and was kind of frustrated and but i always loved film and i played around a little things when i was in like high school and you know always watched a lot of movies and been into like you know cinema and um and started playing around with a lot of digital video early you know dv stuff basically and being able to be like i'd never had like the experience of having I'd never had the experience of working with a group of people and with a film like a shooting on film or any of that but um but it also found it kind of like intimidating not maybe not intimidating but like i never felt like i had a good situation where i'd be i would be happy with it i guess like the people a lot of people i saw and were like film majors as an undergrad i just couldn't take very seriously what they were doing <laughs> like it just seemed pretty ludicrous um so you know, i was more like after playing around being hands-on doing little things and then finally like shooting this sort of man band document in red hook in like 2006 and then also writing a script for the first time which i found kind of very liberating versus writing prose at the time that i kind of just got suddenly then pushed really more into that so what was the first one that you worked on i think the first one that i would call like a proper film that i would you know claim to in some way was um was the documentary i was talking about it was called a hole in a fence and uh it, it was about this it started out being about this abandoned lot in red hook that i had found um and it there was just there was this crazy corrugated metal fence that if you snuck through it right which was a very shady thing to do because you didn't know who the hell was back and this is when it was right before like ikea came in and red hook sort of became a little more gentrified um you totally entered this crazy this world behind all this this fencing there had been a lot of homeless people there and um there's a lot of graffiti it was like a major writing spot for you know for people um but then i found out about this architect who had actually lived in there a couple of years earlier as this project where he lived for like a month with his brother filming him creating a, a, a kind of um shelter out of found materials but then then it was like a serious homeless encampment it was pretty wild um so that added to the film and then we did some more with it so that was kind of the first real thing which funnily enough screened for the first time in like 17 years or something just this past weekend um, oh, wow. yeah i couldn't That's be there unfortunately but i wanted to be oh was that for the uh red hook um what was it our art, arts weekend or something yeah i think that's what it was yeah, yeah. cool yeah a bunch yeah, of people the that groups talk about it that's cool. Yeah, someone Victoria was posting about it a bunch. It was a nice. It was a nice thing. I don't know. I couldn't go because I was oh. out of town, um, for a family thing. But uh, I, I was curious to see after all those years, like how it how it came across. You know. Yeah. Someone sent me a movie a few weeks ago called Red Hook, <laughs> that really has nothing to do with Red Hook, but. It, it's just about it's it's you know people it's just like like romance like romantic entanglements kind of short i guess theoretically in red hook but right. had to do with red hook i thought yeah. there was going to be something that came around i think it's more just like the brand you know it's like right <laughs> right i think it's people think it's cool or something which it is red hook is cool yeah see yeah see that that's there's so much um there's this show on apple plus right now called the changeling that's based on a book from a few years ago and it's really into the lore of like 
the underbelly and like the secret uh you know histories of new york city and like tent communities and and you know islands and stuff and uh, sort of imagining what if like one of those islands like not roosevelt but like the other one next to it you know is really like a community of like you know all these basically there's there's like trolls in caves in central park and there's all these you know there's like a secret navy and stuff and it goes back to i'm reading this book called um the big oyster i think it's called and it's like about how oysters sort of dictate the early history of of new york and it goes into all of the founding communities and stuff like that i love like thinking about you know where we can still explore new york that's cool i want to watch that movie i haven't seen it that was kind of like i mean this book is called they call it the yard so I never experienced yeah. it firsthand, only through and the architect's videos and what he his his accounting of it. But they called the yard. They had a whole community living in there. Um, so it was a little bit like what you're talking about, I think. Yeah. And then you made the short that you sent me. Uh, oh, yeah. Was was that the first narrative short? Yeah, that was the first like real. I would say like proper. I mean, to call it proper might be stretching since we shot it in a day and it was a crew of like three people. But. Um, yeah. But but we had a, Arlene, our DP was great, and um, so and you know th- those of us who made it, we put everything into it, you know, to pull it off. Um, so that was fun, and people liked that a lot. We, we I think we screened it at South by Southwest. That's cool. And 2010 in the midnight shorts. Um, oh, cool. And then uh, yeah, so that was great. Um, that was uh, that made me you know obviously want to do a lot more narrative filmmaking, but we made it for nothing, so you know. Uh, relatively nothing. And then, so where does that bring you with with narrative? You know, I want to talk more about the doc work, but um, you know, we're going to show one of your shorts on Monday. And you know, what's been your your sort of creative life with narrative shorts? I guess that was like uh, like ten years ago. So where where does narrative come into your life these days? It's really just about trying to find money. <laughs> sure. You know, like I always, it's kind of what I first and foremost want to be doing, but it's very just hard to find money to make narrative projects, maybe the kinds I want to make. Um, so the stuff I usually have done is always extremely compromised, extremely, you know, with limited range and budget. But I think I've evolved and I was so I'm super enthusiastic as ever to, for that not to be the case. Um, so hopefully at some point we'll get a project going that's like that. But, um, you know, I think also, yeah, you know, the, the shorts, I think I learned a lot about as in other projects too, how to conceptually kind of think of things that will work in that way. And, you know, so that you can make stronger work because it's then the method fits the concept kind of. Um, so, you know, we did a like I'm thinking of like a short we did on election night in 2016, um, which was kind of like mostly an Arab, a little bit of a documentary along the way. And we kind of shot it in real time around the city as the election with Trump was kind of un- was unfolding. And it's really kind of a goofy improv comedy in a certain way. Um, but at the same time, it's very much like all the actors are, and we were all like experiencing the election happening too, while we were filming and we, everyone was bringing it into what was happening and kind of the exchanges. So, you know, it was a, an interesting kind of experiment and an actual live moment affecting like the decisions actors are making and how just the emotions they're having while still trying to play roles and combine the two things. Um, 
so and I think the short too the the one that you guys are showing is very much like that the um you know it's got a lot of literary elements so that goes back to maybe some other interests of mine but um you know we we I conceived it was to be made a very certain way that we I thought we could get away with and achieve like a very high visual quality and and lean on the things that I felt like we could do without needing a tremendous amount of money um so it's not really there's no dramatic action for the most part you know and we shot on films which was great and that was with Arlene again and um and uh so but we shot an incredibly like one to like 1 1.5 to 1 ratio bro you know like everything was very carefully planned um and so I think we got away with that though and where does where did Wally Sean come into play uh he well, was kind of, yeah, yeah he was you know when we were thinking about who would should do the voiceover which is the most important like part after you know it, it is obviously there's no dramatic you know and it, there's no other voice in the movie so it's just music and the visuals so um he was kind of i mean i always thought he was kind of the perfect choice uh when we and for a number of reasons so we just basically asked him and sent him the you know those this the, the text and he was—he loved it. He liked it a lot. So he—he—he he, he was very receptive, which was really great. Um, you know, when that happens, that's so cool. I mean, he's such a New York legend. I went to the same school as him, obviously, many years later. But he's—he's right. uh, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, since he's also a, a, a tremendous writer and playwright, and um, you know, I think he brought all of that understanding to it as well, and both in, in who he is embodying a little bit of that just by the nature of being there adds something to the movie but more importantly i think it just he really like i think how he thought of the, the writing and the text and how he he presented it he had that additional layer you know of consideration which i mean i really honestly he just he came in it was perfect it was perfect basically and that was it i mean there's really nothing to say much the text is basically yeah. there yeah. right i thought a lot about paul oster while watching was that is that an author you've read was that a reference point at all i've read him not not for a long time mm -hmm. uh, but I, I suppose in some general sense i think yeah. just the whole you know kind of new york literary tradition of a certain kind of like you know sort of new york writers dealing with a lot of sort of the experience of uh, you know probably white male New York writers you know going back to Roth or or others um, and and so Wally's you know father was obviously within you know the end of the New Yorker for all those years and he knows that world so well and has also he's both traveled in it but I think poked fun of it at it as well um, gently or maybe not so gently in a few cases but um, like my dear with Andre is very much in that kind of milieu too so I think um, Woody Allen is obviously in that kind of zone and in the general sense. So I think um, it was always sort of meant to be very obviously set in a kind of that universe, in this, uh, you know, um, and someone who kind of comes out of that tradition. But we're kind of having fun with it all at the same time. So yeah, there's a certain existential dread, a specific existential dread that your character sort of taps into oh shit my battery's not charged oh there we go um there there's like yeah there's a specific type of existential dread that i think he has which is the 
identity loss of identity kind of and and listlessness and, and displacement that like i watch woody allen i watch you know everyone that you just said you know i watched my, my dinner with andre i don't get stressed out by those but paul oster like i have to take yeah. a night to like right I have to do something else you know for a day like it makes me uneasy mm. and your short i think he's in on the same thing of like you know, are you who you think you are? Yeah. And do you even get to decide? Do you have yeah. control over that? Yeah. And can it just creep up on you at any time? And like that, that's, uh, that's the thing. Something's up with my wire. Sorry. Um, that, um, yeah, there's like a unique stress that I get from, from Paul Oster that, that I, felt from yours with this guy who you know the 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 key conflict here is like it starts with you know am i special and it goes all the way out to you know am i anything yeah because the subjectivity of existence kind of yeah i think um i think you were asking for like who felt like a reference it didn't i didn't not in the writing, reference. But I'm more just saying, you know, that's how I, that's how I, you know, yeah. it. No, I think that's a good take. Um, I, I think looking back after writing it, I was very much felt like Borges was like very obviously something in there too. Um, for whatever that, whatever that means. Um, what, what state of mind were you in when you wrote it? Well, so there's a good story about how it came about. I don't know if you noticed there's a, in the end credits, um, I have the writing credit, but it says from an abandoned line by Dan Wexler. So mm -hmm. Dan is a friend and producer and collaborator from going back. Um, and uh, he, uh, we were having lunch after, cause we made a documentary together, Judith and Dan and I, Judith Mizrahi. Um, we were having lunch talking about other projects and stuff. And he, we were talking about, cause he also had had sort of earlier done a lot of writing both like kind of literary and some other stuff um you know at a younger age and we were just talking about different things we had done maybe published or not published but um he he was mentioned that he'd always had this one line for a story in his mind but he'd never been able to write the story after he came up with the initial line and it was basically the opening line of, of the movie oh, and i was like oh i kind of like that you know would you mind since it's been 20 something years and you've never used it you might if i take a crack at it and he said no go ahead so um you know, it's, it's often for me, it's like there's something that just catalyzes whatever the process of writing something is, you know, and suddenly things flow very quickly. So for me, it was that just like the line it just like started very quickly or sort of germinating things. So I wrote something very quickly. I mean, like in a few days, probably a first draft um, from that. So it really I don't know. It was that line. It, it started the whole thing off. What's the line? I don't I don't remember um uh, someone had been uh stealing harold solomon's ideas it's a fun exercise you know to it just sounds almost yeah it's almost like a creative writing assignment which i can't stand right exactly. <laughs> but in this case because it was between friends and it was totally it's a different thing and i it wasn't gonna have like a critique of a bunch of people on a table afterwards uh it was cool nice and and uh you showed it at Woodstock, right? 
Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, that go? I think I thought it went well. Um, yeah, I thought it went well. You know, it's so funny when you screen short, you know better than <laughs> as well as anyone. The order, you know, is such an interesting yeah. question. And I think really impacts like how films sometimes um, are received by an audience. We came after, a, I won't talk about the name of the room, but a 20 minute film that must, may have been the most expensive short film I've ever seen. I mean, I it had like a credit end credits longer than a Marvel movie. Um, and was really painfully tedious after a certain point. So that was good, I think. Although it was kind of like ours, like fairly atmospheric and not a straightforward, like dramatic, you know, short, but I think the audience was definitely ready for something else. So that didn't hurt. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I take very seriously, I completely agree with what you just said. I take it very seriously, you know, the order, like like the, the mix and the order of, of what we're showing. I try and mix it up. I try not to have too much of the same thing. Um, I think that a lot of festivals program blocks that are um, themed and cohesive. And I think it's actually like the opposite. Like you, yeah. you, you it numbs the audience. If you give them six of the same thing, like yeah. why, you know, like, like, you yeah. Know. But I don't want to, and, and definitely this, this program was not like that. And I didn't want to disparage like the programming, which was great in general, like, I just feel like in this one case, like... Oh, it doesn't sound like it was like that at all, yeah. No, no, not at all, no, no. They did a great yeah. job, um, so I don't want to say that. But in this one case, I felt like after that one, which was just very a lot, you know, like it was not a bad spot to be in, so... Yeah, I, I think it's very important, that order and everything, for sure. Yeah, I try and, like, I think about the emotional arc, I think about the formal sort of mixture where, like, okay, where are people gonna, you know, what's the heavy part, what's the light part, when are people gonna laugh? Uh, when is like, I don't want to have like three in a row that are all kind of like shot reverse shot. You know, I don't want to have multiple documentaries with talking heads playing in a row. I don't want to have, you know, laughter. Like I, I want to have laughter in intervals. Like I want the serious parts and the funny parts to be appropriately staged. Sometimes there's like hyper serious ones yeah. that really need to be like bookended with with serious ones because you can't laugh before or after like i remember we had one that was about like political prisoners at guantanamo bay yeah and it was like deadly serious and i couldn't i had to be really sensitive about where i put that because i needed there to be i couldn't have people it was also very short it was like under five minutes so there was no time for people to come off of laughter and yeah. get into heavy mode and then you know exhale so i needed to give like serious serious and then that in the middle so it was like you know 20 minutes in a row of serious or 30 minutes whatever it was but um yeah i think about you have to you have to honor you know the the sanctity of, of some of these and then some you have to do justice to like some some if they are funny if you put them right after the guantanamo bay political prisoners then you ruin them you know yeah. and yeah so you have to be really sensitive i've experienced that in the past with other films where you're just like whoa that is not the place to be <laughs> like that is you're kind of in an impossible position then yeah, and I try and I try and have some like in person stuff, you know, readings and yeah, uh, that's interesting. 
videos, yeah, different kinds of things so that so that the it's not just people sitting in this like sort of passive. I, I like when the room I think about I've, I've DJed my whole life. So I, I think about like as a DJ, I've always played to the room and like you think about that room and like they go to the bathroom, you know, they get a drink. They they do things. They're humans. You know, they're they're, they're having a, an arc and yeah. same thing with like a movie night. If you if you're buckling in for two hours, that's one thing. But when you're watching a shorts program, you're actually not, you know, so like you might want to like get up, you might want to exhale. So the other night we did like a comedy shorts night with stand up. Actually, it was the whole night like rotating. And there was a moment where I was like, you know what, like, let's take five and like let everyone go because I could feel that like the crowd was. It, it was all going well, it wasn't like people yeah. did what was happening but i could tell that like there was between in in the changeovers like all of a sudden i saw like a bunch of people like fidgeting or like talking or you know and i could tell like oh th they have like pent-up energy like let's get let's let them do that let's let them get another round let's let the bathroom line you know finish up whatever and take five and like i like doing that i think it's cool like do 45 and 45 you know mix up the that's, a, that's a great idea <laughs> no seriously that's a great idea an intermission in a shorts program just yeah. to process like go whatever you know just totally that's 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 cool i like that a lot yeah like you can you can have like 30 seconds even to talk to the person next to you about what you just watched not have to wait to talk about all of them at once as well you know i, I mix it up a little bit yeah and sometimes you just you want that moment to process for a second or just you know take a breath like you said before jumping into an entirely different kind of work mm -hmm. yeah, that maybe required a, a more attention less attention whatever but like just you know i think it's that's really helpful for the films too yeah i uh i think that it's 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 half the work you know most people like with these kinds of things it's like just picking good stuff is it and i think 50 percent of it is like the the presentation the yeah. production the program all of that like it's really important you could take mediocre i've talked about this before like where i've taken you know mediocre programs but they play really well and the movies actually are received like like it might be a you know a b movie but it's taken like an a minus sure. movie because it's it played it's presented well and it plays really well for the crowd well, that's something like if you've made movies for a while, you start to realize how much the circumstances in which, and you guys, and you, you do it yourself, the circumstances in which anyone's watching a movie really have a big impact on how they feel about how the experience they have. So, you know, you see a movie when you're in a foul mood alone, you know, like you're not going to necessarily be very well disposed towards it. And so it matters, all that stuff. It's just, there's a lot of luck sometimes too, just. How, what was the audience like that day? Did you happen to get a bad combination? You know, you never know. I was talking to my mom just now, and she called me. She finally watched. I'm a bit. We're we are we're a big uh, Mission Impossible Tom Cruise family right. of fans. The new one. So she just watched it last night. Apparently, I've seen it. I saw it four times in theaters. Oh wow! I loved it, but she didn't. And she she told me why. And one of the things was about she thought they needed more like banter between the team, you know, between Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg, Tom Cruise. Right. And she, she had she had a few complaints, but that was one of them. 
And the way that I, the way that I watched it, I watched it opening night. I, I watched it two nights in a row, opening, you know, preview night and then opening night with the most, you know, enthusiastic audience you can right. get an 800 capacity theater, whatever. Yeah. And I left thinking this was the funniest one of the whole bunch. And she said, this wasn't funny enough. There weren't enough of that kind of back and forth banter. And what I think happens is the way that I, I described it, and probably because these things are on my mind, I use the metaphor of a bomb, but it's like you drop a bomb and it has a radius and it has a half-life. And every point of laughter in a movie theater, when you have a crowd, creates a radius and a half-life. So, so the more laughter in the room, the more the radius grows and the more the trickle down effect goes. So when she was, we were, she was talking about the Venice sequence and how it was too heavy. And I'm, I'm not spoiling anything for you, but I thought the Venice sequence was perfectly like, like, like it was so emotional because, and the way that I described it was the scene right before was all of them bantering and we were laughing. And by the time it took five minutes for us to get over our laughter. And by the time that five minutes carried through the plot, all the, all the stuff happened. And then we're into the suspense scene. And by the time we're into that suspense scene, we had just gotten over laughing hysterically with everyone around us in this room and feeling their energy. And now we are so ready. We are emotionally peaked. We are wide open. Our hearts are open. We love these people. And now they're about to, you know, gut check us. And I thought it was incredible. And my mom watched it and she had the complete opposite experience. She watched it, you know, in her house on a big screen TV by herself. And I think that's it. There weren't the people there. I mean, it's the difference between TV and the movies, basically. Yeah. It's just yeah. that's it. I mean, there's no question. Um, yeah, the, you think there's just, I've had very interesting over the year, you know, all these different audience. I remember once seeing when I was a, like a teenager, like 17 or 18, the screening of Apocalypse Now, you know, and um, just remember like at the, I, at the end when the credits rolled, I, I had never seen an audience just sit there in silence, like kind of like just like they just been destroyed. I mean, they just like didn't know what to do with themselves, and I, that was kind of just always remember that. Um, cut out for a second on my connection. What movie were you talking about? Apocalypse Now. Oh my god! Of course, yeah. So in a theater, like you know, it was uh, it was obviously wasn't the original, but um, it was some like special you know screening in uh -huh. in Ohio. Um, but people were uh -huh. like. They were not, I don't know if they'd still seen it before or what, but it, it just leveled people by the, you know, so when the credits ran, yeah, um, was, everyone just sat there in silence. Like I'd never seen that in a movie theater before. Wow. There's really nothing like that. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Huh. What was the, what was the crowd like for Silk Razor at Woodstock? Did, did you learn anything? Did they laugh at uh, expected places or what, what, what was it like? It was a good crowd. I thought for the most part, um, yeah, I thought we got some good laughter. I, you know, I think it. Re I think for this film, the, the crowd really matters about where their humor lies and what they do or don't pick up on. You know, and that could really change probably how the which direction the audience, how the audience takes it. But I think yeah. that's good because I think you could hopefully interface with it in a few different ways. Um, so I thought, 
I mean, people afterwards seem to be pretty enthusiastic about it when I talked to them. Um, Matthew Modine liked it a lot. He was there. So nice. Um, I bet it's different it's in here. LA. What? Sorry, I missed you on that one. I bet I bet it would play different in Los Angeles than New York. Your movie, probably. But those are that's always what's really interesting is to be surprised with things don't because mm. you kind of have this expectation that like oh this but then like I, it's really cool when you see your movie kind of sometimes hopefully it doesn't always happen obviously but you know kind of you were doubting would work in a certain case but kind of does or works better than you expected mm. that's kind of one of the more pleasurable things to me because i can't it's hard to keep watching them i don't really normally watch them myself sure it's because you want to watch the whole block and stuff you know but like the features after i've watched it because i usually edit them too i'll watch like the first premiere or whatever and then that's it i'm like i'm not gonna watch with it i can't you know i've right. watched it seven thousand times and um so but you know it's it's really great when that happens you get this surprisingly like more meaningful response than from a, from a place or whatever that you would have expected um so i don't know maybe if we ever get to play in l.a i'll let you know how it goes <laughs> that would be yeah, I mean, it's so. I think it's just so. It's such a. It's such a New York movie. It's a very New York movie. That is true. And then um, you've got you've got Uncropped coming next in I could make. Yeah, all the documentaries I make are always about New York. I, I think just because I, I make them about the things that are around me, natural. You know what I mean? But I hadn't actually not intended to. I kind of was like, I don't want to make another movie about New York, but ended up doing it one more time with the documentaries but i don't i think then i won't <laughs> on the documentary side for at least a long time okay what made you what, what was the impetus for uncropped um so it actually came from judith mizaki our producer um we're also married i don't know if you knew that um oh i didn't but yeah to know. well now you know um she uh long ago was the for a little while was the photo editor at the new york observer which was where James went, James Hamilton is the subject of Uncrop. After his long tenure at, at um, the Village Voice, he went to the New York Observer and was their staff photographer. I don't even know if people even remember the New York Observer so much anymore, but um, so she knew him there uh, and she was his photo editor, but she didn't know kind of the extent of his body of work and the journalism and everything that he had done, like working with Romero and all these things before that, that well. And then during sort of, you know, the height of COVID, she reconnected on Facebook with him and started seeing a lot of things he was posting and kind of gleaning a lot more like, wow, I didn't realize James had done all this. You know, I was pretty blown away by that. And so she showed me some of the stuff and um, she said, you know, she thought she raised the possibility, what if we made a movie about James and his photography? And and um, I was certainly was like, when I saw the photos, I was like, this great, you know, it's phenomenal work. And super fun too, just the range of what he covered and the people and the film history was particularly, you know, compelling. Um, but it's kind of loath. There've been a lot of photography documentaries, um, and I kind of didn't want to make just another straightforward profile, purely straightforward profile, profile photography documentary. But then, you know, when we kind of looked deeper a little bit, and I realized the extent of the film work he had done with, again, like Romero, Wes Anderson, and others, that was something more. But then I really looked at the journalism and him as a photojournalist on top of being a photographer and a photojournalist, especially for The Voice, but for all these other places too, doing this such a range of work and just 
covering New York above all in a way that like almost no one's been able to because I think he and Sylvia Plocky at The Voice and though they were the two staff photographers for that run from the early 70s and you know into the 90s she was there a little longer but um at the end but they had such they had an access and a freedom that no one else really had I think and they had a kind of an unlimited film to shoot with and they shot everything you can imagine from the politics to you know all the cultural stuff um all the crazy stuff going on in the city they shot their own street photography it was just non-stop so you know the, the level of coverage of new york history there was incredible and then the kind of journalism they were he was practicing you know i think is all but gone now and that was also really compelling and to see what that meant and what was important about that and how that kind of might be meaningful to where how things are now and what we could kind of take from that you know to kind of see value that we might want to keep you know bring back into the hyper digital world a little more um so that's kind of how that happened and then we know we met with james and james was great and super cool and um, you know that was the beginning so you have a big interest in you know preserving preserving things period but you know cataloging uh, analyzing and and i guess with a special focus on the analog is that or is, is that coincidental like with booksellers as well or is that really a, a focus of yours well i think it's become certainly on the documentary side it's with those two movies especially like yeah it's become uh, a real interest um, but I, I like for me document i sort of fallen out of vogue maybe a bit but i like when documentaries can be meaningful re historical records in their own right and be repositories of information and present information in an interesting way you know and present the experience of how you access things in a different way than you would obviously get because i always my first question about that documentary is often like would this be better as a written text, as a book, or something else? And I so quite often I'm kind of I see some documentaries. I'm like, I'd just much rather read this as a long article. I would think it would be a more complex presentation. I did not find the experience of watching this that meaningful as a film, you know. Um, so I think, but I think it's also really comes down to more my just increase. Like I used to be much more pro technology when I was younger, and think that the kind of the more egalitarian democratic possibilities of free information and like more wider access to work and what people could do and information being a form of like resistance almost and lots of things you know i had more like faith in the possibilities of that i think the corporate sort of not to sound like you know too pessimistic but the you know the corporate sort of takeover of all of that space more or less so much of it at least you know has been very depressing and harmful and you know, I think social media has had a lot of harmful components in the phones, and we have to find ways to find a better harmony and balance with those things in our lives, you know? So I, I do think, like, finding, reconnecting with some sort of core analog things, I think, have been such a part of our humanity for thousands and thousands, you know, millennia, and, you know, I think are so tied to what it means to be human, has a lot of value. So I think in that respect, in making these last two films, it's you know been on my mind that they they both make I think good arguments in that respect for not losing connection to certain things um, too hastily or not letting that be forced on us. Okay. Yeah, you were saying I, I 
I resonate a lot with what you're talking about is things that I think a lot about the democratization of information, of content, of, of form going a different way than we expected, I think, you know, and it's, and it's a tough one. Um, and it does directly connect to actually another, I know you were making sort of separate points, but to me, they're directly connected almost by accident of where you said like, would this movie be better as an article? You know, I think about that all the time and I, you know, I, uh, I'm very, I don't know, I'm very sensitive about the way that I speak on, I, I, I have like a funny relationship with, with just, just with the arts, with what I do, because I am this really, really outward champion of, of all things sincere in film. However, as a consumer, like, you know, I, I have tastes and I have things that I, I, have, I have opinions on the form, on, on how how we should be making and distributing films, you know, for me as a consumer, and, and they're different. For me as a distributor, I have one point of view, and for me as a consumer, I have a different one. And, you know, the idea of article movies comes into play significantly for me. There's a lot of movies like where, you know, you're about to go to Doc NYC, and I'm, I'm presenting some movies there as well, so I'm really excited for it. But yeah, yeah like, there's a lot of movies that as a consumer, as a, as a viewer, as an audience member, I'm like, I'd rather have this as an audible even, not even a um, an article. I'd rather have it be in an audible. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I also think like, you know, there's that that push in documentary that's happened now, I think with the streamers and the, co the commercialization for stuff to be more dramatic, you know? And so I think this being, forced in a little more than is probably healthy in a lot of movies where if you trusted maybe people's interest in the more complex, I'll say the more complex engagement of whatever it is, you know, like it would be a better film often, I find. So I don't think it's always been a healthy thing. Um, trying to kind of like create more narrative, you know, elements in documentary always. Sometimes it works great, but like, I don't know. It seems like that's very much the order of the day in a lot of ways because it just it's it's again I think I don't know I think it's just more commercially it's seen as being more commercially viable by this and it's what the streamers buy more so um, or you get a big <laughs> right yeah it's just not that interesting to me often you know, unless it's naturally there. If it's naturally there, it's one thing. It's more like when it's trying to be like more artificially induced, I guess is the question. Right. What, so what was booksellers like for you with that rollout, with that, with the festival run and then distributing it, you got to play it. I mean, it was, was it all digital? Cause it was, it was COVID year or did it play theaters? So. We got royally screwed basically by COVID, like about as badly as you know you get. We we um, we had a really great festival beginning at New York Film Festival, and um, you know it was people really responded to it there, and so you know we opened in New York um, at the Quad, and we had a in March. What was it like tenth or thirteenth? March thirteenth, I think it was. No way, right there. <laughs> Oh my god! Uh, 
So obviously everything was about to go down and it was already in the air, literally and figuratively. And, um, but we still had like a great week. We were selling it like crazy, which was like with a small documentary like that, that we made, you know, on, you know, mod, very modest means, you know, just a few of us. Um, you're very lucky if you get that chance to really have the potential for a, a real theat a decent theatrical run. And we were after that first week in New York, you know, we were going to expand a lot and hit be roll out to, we were going to, then BAM was going to take it. And, and um, I forget who else was at Landmark 57, because someone else in the city was going to take it theatrically the following week. And then they were going to had a whole bunch of theaters then lined up, you know, in the country. But obviously <laughs> that all ended, you know, one week later. Um, so that was that. So yeah, then we, we did like the virtual cinema stuff, which um, I think we did pretty well considering as well as anyone did with the virtual cinema stuff. So in that respect, it's probably a success compared to what might've happened. And I'm happy that it helped some, you know, like it was helping the theaters too. Um, but it was like nothing like it might've been. And then internationally, we had a lot of interest in all kinds of places. Like Japan was really into it. And, but literally every time we were supposed to open the movie theatrically, any place internationally, there'd be like a new COVID wave and they'd shut down and go into lockdown or something. So it was almost farcical how one thing after another kind of, prevented it from being seen in theaters, but but people really liked it digitally. And so, you know, it's it's great a lot of people saw it. It's probably like, you know, it was comfort food at the time. People get into, you know, cozy up with their books and then have yeah. some context for that, you know? Yeah, I think that's, that was a little bit, I think for people who like are interested, who care about books or interested in any of that stuff or New York or whatever, um, yeah, maybe it offered like some, like human humanness when it was everyone was feeling so disconnected from that you know so what's the plan with doc nyc are you do you have are you looking for distribution is it already set up we are looking and talk in the process of some discussions on different fronts so but nothing set yet um you know i think landscape these days how do we like, what how do you feel about like the distribution landscape these days? It's really hard. I mean, I think it's really, really hard. I, I, I you know, I, we think of this film as a theatrical film, and I think it has it'll play very well in the theater. I watched it big the other day, and the sound mix and the photography alone is just so cinematic, and it, the kind of photography it is, and fun, and and and, and far ranging and powerful, and um, so I think that alone is going to be you know wonderful, big. I think you know we did, did a lot about it. I think it plays very well on a big screen cinematically, and um, so we're you know we want to try and get the best possible theatrical option we can. I mean, I think in New York, and for starters, there should be a really good audience for it. I mean, it's been interesting. So, like, there's all the people who kn like knew the voice from the '80s or the '70s or even early in the mid '90s. You know, the kind of the really the heyday of the voice. I mean, if or going back to the true original heyday in the '60s, but. Um, that's pre-James, so that's not really part of the movie. But so you know, kind of like, I think the the kind of like from the outside, maybe distribution perspective, that like it would be an older, it would skew to an older audience because a lot of the people in are, are on the older side because they were from those eras. But I've, now a number of like younger people in their twenties have seen it or like been while they were working on it or whatever, and they've just all been really intrigued by it and seemed very enthusiastic about it. So that was pretty cool to hear. Um, Kind of like it's like another world to them, but in a way that they're really sort of fascinated by. 
that's exciting well yeah i think it's going to be the youth i think like my millennials are a kind of are like done for right now and uh <laughs> i think it's the young it's the young people who are gonna you know bring more energy it's kind of it's weird it's like the boomers and the really young people are the ones doing cool stuff but like you know i'm, I'm 39 and i think we're all in a really awkward phase like m me and my peers we're like trying to figure out because like we can't be the bosses like our parents were the bosses at this point we can't be the bosses and we're no longer like finger to the pulse so like what are we you know but totally. the young people have the opportunities so i'm happy they're engaging yeah and i think it's hard when like if you grew up thinking of movies in a certain way it's hard to make movies that still you don't think of as being theatrical movies Mm. you know what i mean like it's just it's totally. It's, it's totally like set in your dna at that point like what a movie is you know it's very hard not but that may not always go in the current moment where so much is i think it'd be frustrating for all people who make movies that way because there's, that's not what they're looking for so much these days mm -hmm. unfortunately and hopefully they will come back there'll be more i think interest in that but maybe not i don't know um but so much of the stuff seems like it's really just made for tv movies you know like on the streamer yeah. stuff and i'm just like this isn't what i consider to be a movie really like in a yeah true sense Content. yeah yeah well i'm on the flag for movies with people in theaters or you know not even necessarily a theater just a space with sure. you know like like on uh on monday we're gonna show it in the which is, which is like the bar area of Alamo Draft House, and I actually like it more because it's this more communal space, and like we were yeah. talking, people get to vibe together, and it's more of a hang. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. I like watch. I like feeling the energy of the people yeah. and seeing yeah. everybody. You know, of course, it's not like things can't still work at home. It's like I, we've all watched many great films like at home, like it's fine. Like, but I think those films were fundamentally in their, in their, in how they work. They're still with the mindset that ideally they work in the. Is in a, in a in a theater space, right? But I, one thing that I feel like has not been taken advantage of in the the reality of like now the streaming age is like the idea that films need to be certain lengths. Like, why are we still sticking to the standard theatrical sort of film lengths so rigidly? Right? Like, well, even worse than that, we've now got this eight episode thing that hopefully the strike will have killed, but this whole eight episode television arc is ridiculous. Like it is such a slog getting through things. You know, every show is basically like twice the length that right. it has act legs for. And you get four hours in the middle of nothing. And you know, you get a two night premiere and you get a two night finale. And then right. you get four extra hours of like, like I'm, I'm, I'm slogging through this show Changeling right now because right. I read the book and just kind of want to see what they did. And like, man, the midsection, th there's, there's like an entire, I just got done. I watched it like passively because I saw what they were doing. And like, it's fine. I, I like outlined it from, I was watching it with my friend and I said it to her before. I'm like, we're not going to get into the, uh, the inciting incident until episode four. And then we're not going to return to the plot until episode seven and that's exactly what happened and like you basically just had four hours 
of like character, you know, right. that wasn't in the book. It was like the book wasn't like this. You just, you get like an hour with the mother that like I don't remember the mother in the book. You know, I read the book four years ago, whatever. But like I don't remember that being a fact. I understand why they did it. Like I I, I see where the threads are going to tie. But like I didn't need sixty minutes, you know. And then there's like another sixty minute episode that happens in the middle of it where like they're just doing nothing they're just killing time they're just they're like showing this world yeah. that he's experiencing and it's like it could be seven minutes it could just be like a montage could be four minutes and it's so weird because they need to drag it to eight hours because that's the format and that's why it's so diametrically opposed to what movies are because movies the economy of trying to reduce everything to the essentials to fit into whatever that limited time is it was what makes them so effective is because they're really like sort of lapidary. They're just cut down to that absolutely most, and when they're good, obviously, yeah. like you know, essential thing. And there's a kind of poetry to that. And, and there's no way, there's nothing wasted. And and you have to do it with such care and such commitment to what you're doing. On the other side, you're actually told to make it extra long, basically just so it'll go on and go longer, which means by default, you're almost begging it to be bad, right? Unless you have someone who can really do it in a really, really intelligent way with their what do you do? We don't have guides like Twin Peaks. If you watch Twin Peaks, like you can now, you know, years later, you can you can go to like there's guides of like which episodes right. to skip. If you want to skip season two, you want to skip through, and people will tell you. But like there is that doesn't exist now for these shows. So you have to slog through it. Like conversely, I watched um The Rapture the uh the, the, actually today this morning um because it's on it's on criterion 90s horror and yeah. it's uh it's michael tolkien who's like a great writer wrote the player and wrote the yeah, uh sure. yeah great writer um and david duchovny's in the entire you know the movie he's like a co-star of the movie but clearly he realized halfway through the movie that the movie's mimi rogers's movie and and david duchovny's you know death is is a three scene four minutes yeah. and, and they just introduced that like like he's a he, he's a he's a star of the movie but the second half of the movie is all about mimi rogers so they just like clearly didn't want to waste any more time the, the the two of them got up to that midway point and then like he's not really part of the story yeah. anymore so they introduce a character that kills him in like a couple minutes and i you know it's it's abrupt but it makes emotional arc sense in the movie and in a television series if you adapted that for a tv show today right. that is three hours right like the the guy who kills him who's the you know the the you know uh, like like an un, unpleasant man whatever like they're gonna we're gonna go home with him we're gonna learn all about him we're gonna learn about his mother we're gonna learn about That's you know God, who cares? But, you know, I hate to say it, but it goes back to what I was saying before. Like, I think the main, the reality is people are putting up with this and, and get, because they're on their phones most of the time, they're watching yeah. the thing that's on screen. And so it's yeah. like they talk about now being like background, you know, it's, they're not really engaging it, right? Like, it's just yeah. sort of, and so it doesn't have to be anything except sort of distracting. Um, this show Changeling has like two things happen in an hour. You could you could be on your phone the entire time, and you get the ambiance, you get the visuals. You know, you'll look up and you'll see, oh wow, that's an expensive shot. Like they right. spent hundred million dollars on this thing. I bet, like it's crazy. And you can sense that no one really making these things usually cares at all. 
Like they don't care. Like yeah, it's so weird how easy it is to make epic visuals now. Like like the show right. is incredible looking, and like I don't care. The the sort of there's uh, to me the the increasingly like meaningless. Obtain so easily obtained polish of professionalism yeah. and those is like the least is so almost offensive anymore sometimes right. it is i'm watching it and i'm angry because i'm like oh my god they got the best craftspersons in the industry and tons of resources to make this and like didn't really think about what to do with it it's just a wasteful you know yeah. i mean like you could but like there's no edge in any of it like like a cassavetti's movie would just be like I don't know. Inconceivable to these, like, you know, like, but also, like, <laughs> you just said inconceivable. I, I think it must oh, be like, hardly if, if you people were like, no, used to this, like, go back and watch, like, I don't know, like a film or any older movies. It's like so lean and then just ends like that. And it's over. Right. And there's no, like, why are they robbing? What's it's, you don't know any of the stuff, but like, it's not about any of that, of course, but like, and then when they end, it's just so abrupt. It's like done. We're done. No further exposition. No denouement. No bullshit. Like, it's just, that's it. Yep. No. Yeah, credits. Well, I appreciate your sensibility. I uh, I vibe with a lot of it. <laughs> I think we'll, so I, I hope we'll come back to like a, a kind of like a reaction against this and a reassertion of a certain kind of taste and a reengagement. Yeah, you know, and I think like getting people like you know to come out, see things, just think about things in those terms is obviously very important. So that's like awesome that you're doing that. Well, I appreciate you, uh, you know, showing showing your movie with us, and I'm excited for for Monday. Just, just yeah, we got just a few more days. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm curious to see what else you got in the mix. Yeah, I feel like the program. These these are fun. Usually, uh, it's a mix. Uh, it's a mixture of a lot of stuff on Wednesday. It's not like I'm not sorry on Monday. It's yeah. like I said. It's not you know just like a straight shorts block. All right, all good place. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time and uh, thanks for making the move. Yeah. And, uh, thanks for giving Great. us more with Sean. And yeah. uh, I look forward to Monday. Yeah, me too. I'll see you on Monday. All right, man. Have a great Take weekend. Care. See ya. Bye.